kick down the door. Yeah. Get in a creative flow and listen. I don't know if it's still gonna do some damage, it's still gonna crush it. I reckon they're happy mistakes. That yeah, one's yeah, so yeah. sick. The prince like, we're not becoming artists, like, you should drop that. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, yeah, but I love it so much, I can't. Oh, yes. <laughs> Happiness and crap podcast. Oop. Alrighty then, welcome to the first real episode of Happiness and Crap. I am your host, Luke OK, and today we will be chatting with our good friend and founder of Black Moon Accessories, Amy Gould. She has set out to disrupt and create a new story around making beautifully designed handbags, making sustainability and ethical choices its core mission. My co-host Brett couldn't make this episode, so filling in for Bretty is none other than creative provocateur and my wonderful wife, Bridget Maloney. She has also designed and worked for some pretty big labels herself, but this episode is all about Amy and Black Moon. It's an insightful look into the mind of someone taking a giant leap and creating their own business for the love of their craft and the planet. Enjoy. We are on. Welcome, Amy. Hi. Thanks for having me. No worries. <laughs> so what's been happening in Amy Gould's Black Moon world? Oh, what has been happening? Well, at the moment, we are in the process of releasing our third collection. So it's with the factory at the moment down in Melbourne, and it will be released in a couple of months. Wow. Yeah. So number three, do you think you've gotten used to the process and everything that goes into creating a range? Yeah, I think with every season or maybe even, I don't know, every six months to 12 months, I feel like there's definitely a different kind of hurdle to overcome. A recent one I had was a lack of motivation, which I've never had before in my career Um, and I think when it came down to it diving deep into the analysis of it all I think it was um, basically I was scared of failing and I was almost stepping away before it failed to be I guess in a sense um, like that would have been my excuse that I didn't give it my like 100% but I've kind of overcome that now thank goodness and basically now I'm kind of going hell for leather Um, (laughs) yeah (laughs) and um Basically, if it fails, it fails. But also, you know, if I'm giving it a like 110%, it's got the best chance of survival. So yeah, I think it's I don't know, like a it's definitely owning a business is such a mind game, a lot more than I anticipated. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> so also sitting in with us today, we have Bridget Maloney, <laughs> who is a creative provocateur. Say. Provocateur. Also my wife. <laughs> so, Hello, good people. So I've met Amy through Bridget. And many years ago. Mm. Yeah. Brid, do you want to ask a couple of questions? And Maybe just on what you were saying then about not having motivation and then you finally found the motivation. How did you manage that? Shit, it was like a... Shit. <laughs> it was, to be honest, it was a full... I think I went through that period for about six months. So it was a big... Uh, for me, that seemed like quite a long time to be in that state of not really giving it 100% as a person that has always tried really hard. Yeah, um, I know you and you're like a... It's all systems are go usually. Yeah, and exactly. for you not to be motivated yeah, is really was, rare. 
and it was so intense because I kind of I guess you're kind of questioning your dream when you first step out and you're like this is exactly what I wanted to do and then kind of when it's not exactly what you thought it would be which it never is Mm. but I was like oh my god that's actually like is this what I want to be doing and of course it is deep down but I mean obviously I had to go through that cycle of thinking about it but I think the really hard part was kind of realizing that the lack of motivation was actually fear rather than Mm. actual lack of motivation. Like it was um, a way to almost hedge my bets and go, you know, like, yeah, if I don't, if I don't succeed at this, I didn't, I wasn't giving it my hundred percent. That's a really shit way of looking at it. But uh, yeah, I was obviously doing that unconsciously. And then now that I'm like back in the swing of things, you do have to, yeah, keep going despite all the hurdles that you come across. So it's like you identified the fear and then you're like, oh, okay, I know what it is now and now I can move through it. Exactly. How did you get to that conclusion? just working through it yeah well I think I think I, I must have stumbled was across it like a, a light bulb moment or was it like a gradual thing I think it was a gradual thing and I think it was like a number of articles that I was reading or podcasts that I was listening to that sort of made me realize what was going on mm-hmm. I definitely didn't come to that con- well I came to the conclusion by myself but obviously via other people's experiences and how they were talking about it what got you re-motivated uh, as you know we both love podcasts yeah. <laughs> um, so there is heaps of podcasts out there that are really good like one of my favorite ones is how I built this because it it takes these brands or the you know these companies that have at the height of their extreme success you know earning millions to billions of dollars per year but he takes it back to that first five years of their business everybody kind of well from my perception is is that sort of everybody seems like an overnight success when there's generally when you actually get into it so many people work their asses off so much five to ten years before it even becomes kind of recognised in society. So, like, it it was, yeah, that sort of stuff where you feel like you're treading water, but in reality everybody is kind of doing that in the beginning and not really getting where they want to go. Yeah, you don't (laughs) see, like, the two or three other failed businesses that they had to take a whole bunch of learnings from. and Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, like, even just, um, even if it's not multiple businesses, there's multiple failures within Mm. your business as well. I feel, like, fortunate at the moment that the stuff that I'm learning, I'm learning quickly, which is good, and I am still so small. So the failures are not having such a big impact at the moment, like financially or time-wise, but I can imagine if you are making those mistakes on a bigger scale, it would be a much bigger deal. I don't know, I kind of feel like one of the other big conclusions out of that whole scenario was realizing that I'm paying, playing the long game. I don't want to be the short, fast, popular brand that comes in, is great for a couple of seasons and then dies. No, for sure. Yeah. That probably leads into your business model of being a sustainable and ethically sourced goods label. Yes. Do you want to talk about <laughs> your ethos with Black Moon? Yeah, definitely. So basically, I work, I've worked in fashion my whole life, but the last business I was in was a mass market accessories label. And there were so many great things about the role and about the people that I worked with. But at one point, I kind of realised I was going down this self-development journey of, you know, using, I was using like natural products on my skin. I became a vegetarian and then I started to care about what was happening in the planet. And then all of a sudden, my values weren't aligned with the job that I was doing. So for me, it was like, okay, there's such a massive gap in the market where you want to create beautiful local products where you can talk about every step in the process. 
but they still have to look good and you still, I don't know, I felt like there was a gap there for the style that I wanted to create. I mean, now it's kind of becoming a lot better in terms of there are more design options out there, but generally if it was an ethical, sustainable brand... You know, f- five years ago, it was hemp and like, mm. you know, like that kind of traditional hippie stuff, um, yeah. which I appreciate, <laughs> but that's just not who I am. So I sort of saw an opportunity to create something that matched my values with also my match, like my love of design and beautiful things. Your aesthetic. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But yeah, that's a really good point. Five, ten years ago, there wasn't ethically sourced leather, or if there was, it was so niche. Oh, 100, yeah. What you're doing is pretty groundbreaking in terms of handbags and Yeah, it is in the accessory world, yeah, yeah for sure. Um, fashion at the moment is in quite a good place in terms of, I feel like, even though there's a small number of options for you to shop at, it's much bigger than it was, and the designs are reflective of the contemporary era that we're in. They're not naff, you know, like they are actually beautiful pieces and made with really quality materials but with accessories it's a little bit of a different ball game because there's so much more I feel involved mm. to understand where the cows come from the tanning process getting it made in Australia because a lot of our a lot of the skill left well died when everybody went offshore to China or India so even that yeah is a very niche business here yeah. so how did you go about finding the rare few people that were left in Australia to manufacture. Oh, it was such a journey. Just like Googling it. <laughs> it literally, so you would, I don't know, like I kind of went into it and I was like, easy, I'll do a Google search, like it'll be fine. And oh my Lord, it's so much harder than that. I mean, it started off with that. Then I went to the white pages and I literally was talking <laughs> literally person like to person. The, the pages? No, the white pages on the internet. On the internet yeah. okay. <laughs> what could you do there with like yeah, flicking? I know. <laughs> And it was really, it was actually quite a beautiful way to do it because you're actually talking with makers, you know, like there were a lot of road blockages, but one conversation would, they would put you on to this next person that would put you on to this next person. And then finally, after what it seemed like forever, um, yeah, I found my factory down in Melbourne, which I mean, they are on the internet, but obviously they probably don't pay too much attention to yes. SEO and things so like that. Yeah, that's such an interesting, I haven't even thought of the white pages for years, but uh, yeah, if you need mm. to find someone that doesn't have a website. Yeah. It's just the local directory. Mm-hmm. Does anyone use that these days? <laughs> you do. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, I've heard of a few people recently using it. I guess though... It's a good spot to start. Yeah, yeah. I think in the case like this with a small industry, it probably, and an old industry, you know, my factory workers have been in the business for 40 years. So being in the white pages is probably being from almost like just a habit to be in mm. there. Yeah, yeah. Rather than yeah. thinking about it in a business sense maybe. And do you want to talk through the process from start to finish that your leather, the journey that your leather takes from being... A, cow. A, a skin yeah. on a cow to <laughs> yeah. ending up on your website. Okay, so I come from a place in New Zealand um, called New Plymouth, which is in the region uh, Taranaki. And within our region, we have cows that kind of fall under the umbrella of ANSCO. So ANSCO have a really great welfare guideline for their animals. But I mean, as anyone in New Zealand can attest to it, farmers do treat their cows like their family, you know, like they, they kind of are their pride and joy. And which is hence like one of the reasons why we have such a good reputation around the world for the quality of our meat. Mm. You don't get good quality meat without not treating them well. You know, you have to treat them well. So New Zealand also is really good in terms of climate. We have a proper four season cycle, which means things like our cows don't get ticks and things like that. Like they've just live in a really good environment. 
So after the farmer decides that it wants to sell that cow, it gets sold to an abattoir and they pay per kg of meat. So the cow is essentially solely sold for its meat and the hide is a byproduct. So the the hide is, well, after slaughter, the hide is then sold onto our tannery, which is maybe a couple of hours away, which eliminates one of the processes. Normally after um, the cow is slaughtered, it would get salted to preserve it um, and then you know like you have to wash it down afterwards just sort of eliminates one step in the process which is really awesome so it goes from slaughterhouse to the tannery within 12 to 24 hours oh so they salt it because typically it would take longer to get to the tannery yeah like as in normally oh. they would potentially get get shipped to China to get sold oh, at, in a market there or you know like it actually travels quite a lot I think 95% of hides in Australia leave um, oh my gosh. In, that, in that state to go to another market to be sold for tanneries to buy and yep. they tan their own. So you're cutting down a huge transportation cost and yeah, CO2 exactly. emissions as such? Yeah, exactly, 100%. And also just so much transparency and knowing where your cows are from and then going straight to a tannery. Mm. Like what I just said, how a lot of the other hides end up in um, a market to be sold. I mean, the transparency is getting slightly better in that area, but most of the time you don't know what the conditions the cow has lived in, like has it had a good life? Sometimes you don't even know what country it's from. It is, this path for me was like the most transparent that I could kind of hope to, you know, like hope to have for my business. Yeah. And then once it gets to the tannery, um, it's tanned with non-volatile organic compounds. The conditions of the, for the workers is amazing. Um, I've been in some tanneries where guys have been walking around in bare feet with Ooh. chemicals, using their hands, their bare hands. Like it's, I don't know, it's sort of hard unless you've seen sort of the other side of it. And the other side of it that I've seen has actually been relatively good. Like if you watch the movie... Um, I think it's called River Blue. You see a lot of the tanneries in third world countries where mm, we haven't seen conditions it. are devastating. Yeah, people are basically working with their hands and their bare feet and then the effluents going into waterways and then killing basically everything. Mm. Um, but anyway, so once, once a tanning process happens, our tannery has an on-site water treatment facility, which is great. So... Um, I can give you more details on that. I um, I have all of the proper details, but that's taken my, me a little bit longer to get my head around because I'm not a science person. <laughs> but basically we treat it at the tannery and then it also goes to a government facility where they treat it again to get it up to a good standard. So there's uh, that in itself is like what we would consider, I mean, as a normal human being, you would expect that, but that doesn't happen for many tanneries. The disposal of the effluent is one of the things that can harm the atmosphere the most. Mm -hmm. So you have to do it right. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that happens then um, I buy the hides and then I get them sent to Melbourne where they get made so into handbags. So you buy directly from the tanneries? So I the... don't buy it directly. I have suppliers in Australia that buy from this tannery, oh, Taz yeah. Tan, only because at the moment I can't meet the MOQs. Mm -hmm. But that... I know that those hides are from Taz Tan, so we've yeah. got that relationship. Awesome. 
That's cool. And then from there, do you get the leather and yep. do so, your thing? Yep, um, so visit my factory and we yeah, hand over the briefs and they get made down there, which is really cool. And I, well, and I also weave parts of them. They'll do part of the production process and they'll send up panels for me to weave and then I weave and then send them back and then, yeah, they finish up the process. And the weaving, that's like a nice little design feature on the Black Moon bags. Yes. So would you say that's like your iconic like, look? Signature. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's one of the things that the makes weave. me the happiest. Like it's a very soothing thing for me. Because you do them personally, don't you? Yes. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. So, so some of my bags can take up to eight hours weaving. So, so that's so eight hours weaving plus what the factory's doing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, wow. It's a little bit of a labour of love oh, at yeah. the moment. <laughs> and then what about the other parts of the bag, like the hardware? So at the moment, the hardware is uh, it comes from Italy, from a reputable source, but it's definitely something that I still want to improve on. Like I think, especially for the Australian climate, like 100% brass is really ideally where we want to be. And can you explain the benefits of brass versus whatever the other brands use? So for pretty much any hardware that any bag so I didn't uses, know this until you spoke. You told me this and yeah. I'm in the industry too. Yeah, well, normally the, the base metal is a much cheaper metal and depending on who you use, it can be really cheap or it can be like, okay, cheap, like it's reasonable. Then it gets coated and then, because you can't have 100% gold hardware, mm. otherwise the bag <laughs> would be a million dollars. But that coating can sometimes, you, what you should do is there should be another coating that goes on top of that that seals everything. But a lot of hardware places are missing that step now because it's an, another expense that people don't really see in the beginning. Mm-hmm. But what it does mean is that your hardware will, the coating will wear, wear off a lot easier. Whereas 100% brass, if it wears down, it's still wearing down to brass. So it's like a... Which That's looks kind nicer? of the difference. Or yeah, well, I mean, it depends depending on what you what look you're going for. A hundred percent brass, you just know that from start to finish that's what it's going to look like. Okay, and it's durable too. Yeah. We also use Riri zippers, who also have a big ethical component in terms of how they source all of their components as well, which is great. Um, that's also on their website, which I need to and where link up. Are, where are they based out of? They are a Swiss brand. Cool. Oh, I think, yeah, I'll double check that for you. Pretty sure it's Swiss. Um, but to be honest, they probably are all made in China, like, as with a lot of the hardware places. Um, and then with my lining, what I would love is to be, to be using recycled plastic materials that they, you know, make into new fibres. Mm-hmm. But at the moment, because my MOQs are so small, the way that I'm sort of feeling good about it is I use designer's dead stock. Stock where designers have bought a certain amount of material and then not used at all. So essentially that would just be sitting there not getting used. Yeah, that's so it's cool. then sold on. And I, yeah, I buy that because I can buy it in small rolls but still feel like I'm contributing and not bringing something new into the world. I'm yep. using something that was going to be potentially wasted yeah yeah and then all of our packaging is made recycled tissue you know the boxes are recycled made in sydney yeah everything's kind of been considered proper inks and yeah on ecostar paper which is uh, post consumer recycled so it's already had a use and then it's been recycled yeah 
even down to like our leather care labels are made out of, um, it's this really cool company in the UK who make business cards. And I also used it as our leather care card out of off cuts of t-shirts. So you know how like when you cut a t-shirt, if you've got your material laid down, like there's always going to be like little bits and pieces, Mm. like scraps. They've then changed that into paper reused it um, and upcycled it I guess into paper so they're printed on those which is awesome cool very cool when you are designing a range of bags do you draw out the design lines on a piece of paper by hand or how do you go about creating those designs yeah so this is something that I still feel like I need to master because I am only producing four styles a season I used to like out of all my categories I probably would be bringing in say 50 options a month in my last job and it was very much like okay you had a big range you could kind of hit every sort of person within that range and you know if one didn't work it was fine whereas when you've got a much smaller range it is much harder because you've got to make sure that every kind of piece counts so that sort of part of it is um I'm still getting used to and I'm still kind of finding my own voice I feel like within my design I do yes I draw them out but I also pattern make a lot of them as well myself and sew them prior to handing them over to the factory so I've got more of an idea of what exactly I want it to look like which works more for my brain, 2D rather than 3D. Each piece that you create, are you thinking about what kind of consumer is going to end up with that? I don't know, say like a punk person or like a... (laughs) (laughs) Is there... Yeah, I guess like the target consumer for me is probably people like me, which like because I created this brand because I did see that there was nothing that I could buy in the market. Like I am ethically minded... I love yoga, I love natural brands, I love looking after the planet, all that kind of stuff. I feel like there's lots of people out there that are kind of coming to those same conclusions as me and would really care. Like if they did want to leave a bag that lasts, which I think are far superior to any synthetic um, option, Mm. they would care about the story of where the leather came from and it would it would be a better choice for yeah them. for sure you hear a lot about the kind of vegan side of things and being anti anti-animal product yeah but then they don't think about the synthetic side and that's more detrimental to the environment or yeah it's well it's a really hard one because at the end of the day like as I'm a vegetarian if you're a vegan and that's your belief I totally stand by it I don't want to change your mind but Having worked in a business that sold both synthetic products and leather, you the synthetic products don't last. Like they literally mm. don't. They are plastic, and yeah. when they break, you can't get them fixed, and then they are and then in landfill. Whereas if you have mm. a leather product, you know things will happen to it over time. But you've got cobblers and people that can actually have, that do have the skill to repair them for you. There's support out there for you, and you know if you condition it and protect it, it will last a lifetime. I 100% feel like that is something that I can stand by. Is this a tactical thing that humans connect with? You, you're going to cherish it that a yeah, whole lot more as well? Definitely. Mm. Um, and personally, I mean, the, the feel of a leather bag is... 100% better than a feel of a synthetic mm. bag. I, but I, I mean, it's hard because I am cautious of vegan people that they don't, I understand it. Like I, yeah, I get why no, they yeah. don't want to do that, Absolutely. go down that path. Yeah. But yeah. I'm giving people who 
are ethically conscious about it but still want a leather bag, you know, still want the longevity, the bag that is going to go the mile. Yeah, I totally see the vegan point of view and wanting to be animal cruelty free. Yeah. But at the end of the day, there's going to be that byproduct that will either go into landfill or not be used. I know. If we're going to be using animals for meat, we might as well try and use the whole animal. I know. The meat consumption is huge, yeah. So it's, it's, and I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. And I mean, of course, I would love the meat consumption to go down, but there still is going to be a leather bride product at the end of the day. So it's, yeah. And when it's weighed up against the cost of synthetics and what that does to the environment, yeah. It's just. I know, it just is for me because I'm such a plastic hater. Like, yeah. it really it irks me. But it's actually quite good because I feel like the ethical community in Australia, especially, there has been a lot written up about it recently. I think people are becoming aware of the vegan option, in quotation marks, is not necessarily the best. Mm. I mean, it depends where your values sit, right? Like, there's, there's so many things you have to kind of take into consideration. Yeah, I think a, a lot more people are becoming aware of that actual cost. Even with sheep wool, there's been a massive turnaround to come back to sheep wool instead of using synthetics. Yeah, sheep need to be shared every year, like otherwise they will get hot. (laughs) Like I've seen, I mean, it's so interesting. When you grow up around Taranaki, the area that I'm from, is a dairy farming area and I've got friends who farm. I've got friends who have an Ansco farm. I've seen the cows that potentially could end up as one of the bags. Those animals do have such a good life. And I know, you know, in contrast to, say, India, it's the polar opposite, like, of course. But I think that's why it's like you have to be, when you are using animal products, and this comes down to the meat you eat as well, just be really inquisitive and, like, try and find the best option out there and pay more. But we need to sort of change the way that society views it. The cheapest is not the best. Like invest in something that's actually good quality an animal that's had a good life it must in some level like resonate in the energy of the meat and the you know like it's you can't i don't know absolutely the thing about cheap meat is not yeah so you also mentioned ansco in a previous answer is that like an accreditation like a organic certified kind of so um, it's, it's, I'll try and explain this. Um, hopefully I'm saying it correctly, but basically it's like a, um, an umbrella of farms in the region are under their umbrella. Mm-hmm. So if you're an ANSCO farm, you have to, you know, you meet all these requirements in terms of like how you treat the animals, the place where they're living, da, 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 da. And then once the animal has come to the end of its life, it is then sold as an ANSCO cow. Right. And does that cover farms in Australia as well as New Zealand? Or is no. It just and it, I mean, thing? even in New Zealand, there's multiple. Okay. Um, so ANSCO is just, I think, relevant to Taranaki. Right. Yeah. Mm. Is there that kind of organisation for Australian farms as well? So, well, with the Australia... Um, so like I said before, a lot of it a lot of it is sold in wet blue phase. So when it's being salted and then it goes off. Mm-hmm. There is one good tannery here called Packer Leather. So I I definitely still am open to move. Like but I just really loved for me, um, because I'm a Kiwi and I live in Australia, I really liked the trans Tasman story as well of like my leather's from New Zealand, but I'm getting it made in Australia. Like I feel like that's quite a representation of me as well, like and it sort of embodies 
the both parts of who I am. Yeah, for sure. I feel like even your little leather weave signature is very kind of Kiwi yeah, influence. Yeah, maybe it is. Yeah, oh. yeah, true. I'd never thought about that. Either. I definitely, my Nana was a big crafter. She knitted, she crocheted, she did all, so she had a craft store, always helped her with the markets and stuff like that. And I really feel like I've got that off her. And I've, I don't know, like I stepped away from doing things with my hands for so long. You know, when you're, I don't know, as a buyer, you're kind of just telling other people what to do. And this is like actually you're getting back into it and when it comes to the weaving phase like I'm sort of doing it all in a big block and I could be weaving for two weeks such a cool time to like spend doing that I don't know quite therapeutic yeah and I'm just about to sew the new dust totes for the next 50 customers (laughs) Um, so yeah I hire machines from a really cool girl in Sydney um, for the week and I yeah just sew them all so smash it out smash it out it gives it honestly when you do it yourself though it gives you a new appreciation for everything because on my blog I talked about how I I could have gone to China and just got cotton dust bags or totes you know for three to five dollars per unit um, which was super cheap but I've obviously didn't want to go down that route because that's not what I'm about so I again I buy the upcycled dead stock material got a local business to print them last time but I'm embroidering them this time local business to hire the sewing machines and then I sew them myself and it takes like probably an hour per bag so an hour of my time plus all the other costs involved it is a labor of love because you're like oh my god like there is an easier option out there but that easy option is not I don't align with and I don't want to uh bring that into the brand no, and that's for just sure. for the dust that's not even the leather know, bag exactly <laughs> so it's like oh my gosh because like. you went through that phase early on where you were debating whether to even deliver your leather yes. bags in a dust bag yep. i'm having this debate with you a few times yeah because you're constantly before, juggling like the consumer's expectation yes. of getting like a expensive good quality item like what does it come in you don't want to create extra I think you said to me, oh, everyone has so many of those calico dust bags. Like, do we really need another one? Yeah. But then it's like, what do you put it in? And then you got to this solution, which I thought was awesome. Yeah. I think that's the thing. When you're a sustainable business, um, there's not a tried and true path, which is really awesome on one level. But I don't know, I was talking to you guys about it, but sometimes I can really slip back into my old ways of thinking, like my old retail fashion ways. And it's like, actually, no, this is like a totally new business. This is a new way of thinking. And you just have to find your own path. And it's like, how long is a piece of string? Because you've kind of got to draw the line somewhere with sustainability and ethics. I mean, you I would say you do it to the majority of your business, but if you went down to like... Oh, I know. Every part of what goes into the bag, the stitching, where's that thread from? Yeah. Like, oh my gosh. It's never ending, but you kind of got to draw the line somewhere, otherwise, you won't end up with anything. Yeah, exactly. And I think the thing is, what I'm learning, especially from a lot of ethical bloggers and stuff, is that nobody's perfect. You've kind You're of- still a better option than what's out there by far. And I yeah, that, and that's the thing, I think, that a lot of people get caught up in. Uh, it's not 100% ethical or sustainable. Everything that a human does is going to impact the environment in some way. 100%. As long as you're making the majority of what you do conscious towards being sustainable, yep. then that's bloody awesome. <laughs> and like I think as well, just to keep making each year better. Like, okay, you yeah, get... You build on it. Yeah. You're like, okay, I've solved that problem. All right. Okay, now I'm ready for the next one. You can't tackle everything at once. Mm. Otherwise... you like your dust bags. Yeah. You didn't do it at the beginning. No, because it was and just... And then you got to a place where you could. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Otherwise, it'd be too overwhelming. Because it is this this ethical one. Sometimes you can feel quite deflated by just the sheer 
amount of mm. shit in the world. <laughs> Just the amount of plastic and the amount of rubbish that we have, it's, it makes me so sad. You look sad. <laughs> I know, it really it does. <laughs> I hate plastic. What you're doing is super inspirational and oh. hopefully has a massive knock-on effect for other businesses. I honestly think in five years' time, I'm going to look around and there's going to be so many competitors because there has to be a change. Yeah, it seems like there is a push away from fast fashion and everything being yep. so quickly made out of China. And if we want jobs to come back to Australia... I know. There's so many solutions out there just waiting for us. Yeah. But it's like, I think... Sometimes you need almost a massive catastrophe for that consciousness to wake up and be like, we need to change something. I, I mean, mean, hopefully it doesn't get to that point. It seems like we're pretty much really at that there, point. Really there, aren't like, we? Yep. When you look at all the trash that's in the ocean. I know. And it's scary. And I think sometimes we really do. I mean, Australia and New Zealand are both beautiful places and we don't always see it. So it's really hard for a lot of people to comprehend. If you open up your eyes, if you travel, if you watch documentaries, there is a lot of stuff going on in the world that we need to... We need to try and help. Like, what are we here on this earth to do? Make more shit? No, we're not. <laughs> yeah. I will, I hope. I think we all have a part to play, no matter how small or how big. Absolutely. So this is a pretty big creative adventure that you've undertaken. Do you do other creative stuff outside of this? No, I think, to, to be honest, though, because I work... Um, so I have other part-time jobs to pay the bills. When I am working on Black Moon, I'm working at home by myself and that can be quite intense when you're used to colleagues and bouncing ideas off people and meetings and all that kind of stuff. So the way that I kind of get my human fix is I listen to a lot of podcasts or I read. Even though that's not doing something creative, I feel like that's the stuff that I'm interested in at the moment is like reading up on things that I'm passionate about, hearing about things. and So it's just fueling the fire. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Yeah. A little bit of gardening. Yeah, that, that's <laughs> a creative really, outlet a little bit, sure. yeah, Mature. And like you do lots of creative rituals because yeah. maybe you should explain the side of yourself that's a little bit kooky, as we like Very to call kooky. it. <laughs> Very spiritual. We were just in a store then and Gouldy was telling me about, what are the little sticks? Oh, the, like pa- the Palo Santo sticks. The energy. I feel your creativity comes out in the rituals of what you do every day? Yeah, I definitely am not, I am a bit abnormal. <laughs> I, do you know what though? I feel that like means I am too. <laughs> there's so many more people that are coming around to these kind of thoughts. I definitely try and meditate. I do, I do do little cleansing rituals after I clean the house each week. I do things like bathing my crystals in the moonlight. You bathe in the moonlight? So I bathe the crystals in the moonlight to cleanse them. Ah, so what is that? You put them out? So you put them out on on um, soil. And then so when the full moon is up that night, it beams down on them. And what it does is it rejuvenates them, but it also cleanses any energy that's stuck in them. What kind of crystals do you have? I've actually got a whole lot of little ones. And to be honest, I don't really know what a lot of them mean, but... With crystals, generally the thing is, the, whichever one you're attracted to that day, you kind of is the one that you need. Mm-hmm. So quite often I walk around with them in my pocket. Um, ah. 
coats. Yeah, so generally, like, my coats, I'll reach in and I'll be like, oh, there's one of those crystals that I've got in there. Just, yeah, stuff like that. Like, I do definitely believe that there is something much greater out there than us. Found a lucky rock on the beach the other oh, day. Yeah, exactly. Like, the thing should, is, I mo- should I bathe it in the moon? Yeah, I would definitely. I'll be saying that he should bathe his um, wedding ring in there because it's vintage. There oh. might just be some stuck energy in there. Oh. So bathe it in there. I'm sure it's not. I should do that to mine then too. Yeah, like a little, um, just make sure that wherever you put it, it's not going to get taken away from the panel. Yeah, that could be dodgy around here. (laughs) I was just trying to look up the exact fact here on my phone, but I heard recently that Patagonia, once they hit a billion dollars revenue, they were going to stop producing goods. I might have to fact check this exactly, but it was something about either slowing their supply chain or stopping their revenue altogether because they just believe once there's that amount of product out there, they just don't need to keep producing. They are like is that amazing. Kind of, yeah. Is it that something is... that you would, once you get to a billion dollars with Black Moon? <laughs> oh my God, imagine the I day. I thought that was so yeah inspiring. Like I haven't heard of anyone doing that before. No. Patagonia, uh, the trailblazers. 100%. But I actually had, I was just on a work trip and had an argument with well, a healthy debate with a colleague when we were talking about this exact fact and sustainability and he just thought it was all a hoax, like no, all a big media stunt. And I was like, do not take me on. No, because um, <laughs> so they've also done a few other things. Um, but they don't believe in Black Friday. You know how that's massive yeah. in America. So they said, we don't believe in Black Friday. What we're going to do is... Everything that you buy on Black Friday, you're still going to buy full price. But what we'll do is we'll make a donation. I don't know if it was like matching the donation. So like if you bought a jacket for $200, they would donate. I don't know if it was the full amount or if it was a percent. So they ended up donating. Like people love that. They don't, they they had their best day ever. And then all that extra money went to some charity. Yeah. And Donald Trump has done a massive tax cut on the highest bracket of earners in America. And they ended up with a ridiculous amount of extra money just because of the tax cuts. So they have then invested all of that extra money instead of putting it back into the business or keeping it. They're giving it to, I mean, one of their favorite things is to give it to grassroots activists Mm. so they're not keeping their money the extra money that Donald Trump has given them pretty much from the tax cut and I just think stuff like that is so cool so is that kind of if you grew you'd you'd adopt those kind of philosophies with your business or when I was younger I always wanted to create a business and it be a world dominating success did you like how young like like I've always wanted to have my own business and I've always wanted it to be for me to be the high roller yeah (laughs) back in the day but now going through the journey last year when I was talking about being not motivated I was like actually my dream has totally changed it Mm. is I do just want I mean I think a team of five would be magic Mm. Um, I would love to get to that point because I would love somebody to help me with marketing. <laughs> I would love, you know, people that were like really good at what they do to help me make it better. But yeah. I just, I don't, I can't see it growing bigger than that. Like mm-hmm. I would, I would love it to be perfect at that level. And because I still want a life. Mm. I really do believe I don't want to be in the business 24-7. I love it and I want to do it and I want to create it and I want it to be successful, but I still do want a life outside of it. Because I enjoy other things as well. Yeah, I think that's super important. Yeah. It's good to have your own business and be super passionate about it. Even if you absolutely love it, being in it 24-7, you're going to burn out on it. 100%. And, like, I don't think that's healthy for anybody. No, absolutely. That's such a 
amazing perspective to come out from a business. And not what not what world domination. <laughs> yeah. well, like every every business is like scale it up, make as much profit as you can. Oh, and, and it's, it's so frustrating. We're in a business at the moment. Uh, Bridget and I and the whole roadmap is make more profit than last year. Yeah. And it's unattainable. No. And, and that's what you're measuring the success of the business on. Yeah. It's a crazy. Soulless. Yeah. Well, not even soulless. At a point, you, you're going to stop growing. Yeah. And you're going to um, be so exposed because basically to to make more money, you've got to buy more product. And generally it gets watered down, um, especially if it's being led by a financial decision. And then you mm. end up having to mark it down and it's like, and then all of a sudden you potentially your business crumbles. Yeah, that's probably it. the most frustrating part of our daily job at the moment yeah. is how watered down product gets when you're chasing yeah. profit. When you've got to be churning out how many SKUs yeah. per month, it's ridiculous. And the, yeah, the whole ethos is it needs to cost this much so we can make yeah. more profit. Oh my God, I know. Charging this amount and yep. and the product it just keeps getting degraded. Worse and worse. Yeah. Going to cheaper factories, buying cheaper material, paying people less and less and less. It's yeah. like... Less sustainable practices. Yeah. And like people are not looking... Oh, there's just so much stuff about it. And I think the thing is, is that we're... Because we're in the fashion industry and we've seen it, your eyes are so much more open. But I think there's a lot of customers out there that just actually have no idea. And I, I get it because I don't know a lot about other industries as well. And I'm sure there's like unsustainable practices in other areas of life mm. with the, the mining industry or whatever. Like there's probably stuff going down that's really not good in every area. It's like until yep. you're every, until someone's yeah. telling you and like you're opening up their perspective. I think that's why the discussions are good. Things do need to change. Like that $5 T-shirt, holy moly how the hell have you produced it for five dollars yeah like who's getting ripped off yeah. to even create that i think one of your biggest challenges and anyone who's in the sustainable and ethical space it's how do you readjust the consumer's expectation because yeah. like you said they don't know yeah so one you need to educate them but it's like how long will that take and yeah. do they believe you like i think you use the term greenwashing a lot yeah. like how do they know who to listen to and yeah. they think that's awesome that they can get a t-shirt for five bucks why would they pay 20 they think they're getting ripped off yeah All these big department stores like just trying to beat each other on price it's created this yeah really tough position for other brands and I don't know like it's a it's a hard one to manage it definitely is um it's, uh, so there's a brand in the US called Everlane who are quite transparent mm. on their pricing and oh, I do yeah they do the they spell it out yeah dollar like dollar by step dollar by step don't they like yeah fabric the mill sewing the fabric sewing the product yeah so it's and that's I've sort of I've really been would you do that well so at the moment I do tell people it costs me five times the amount to bring in to create a leather handbag in Australia it costs me five times more than creating in India so that do you think that they'd believe you well, it's kind of an obvious fact. What if they just think you just want more profit? If the, they, the if proof's they don't in the pudding, but with the quality of the, the actual goods. Yeah, it's still. I think at the I end of the day, though, price is such a big thing. Yeah, for I don't think the average consumer would. I think some of them are like, oh, it shouldn't be that much. Maybe it would be a couple hundred more, but yeah, your price points are high because they should be. Yeah. 
and they can't seem to get their heads around that. Yeah. Because they just don't know. Yep. So it is, so part of my job at the moment in terms of the marketing side of it is really bringing it home, the, the, the story about it. And I think the thing is, is because tanning leather and all that kind of stuff really hasn't been talked about much anyway because mm. obviously it's been a bit of a dirty secret for people don't want to talk about something that what was upsetting the sweatshop factory in Bangladesh that side of it customers have never had that kind of opportunity before to understand so yeah. I think I don't know I think this year has been quite positive this and last year I feel like there's a few more articles out there explaining it more fully. I feel like I really do believe in five years' time I will have a lot more people that will understand and appreciate what I do. Is your website, does that explain, like, your whole process and transparent on what the costs are? So not transparent on the costs at the moment. Like, I still need to kind of figure that out. Is that something you're going to get to? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I do need to work it out because it's also... Um, so with Everlane, they are online only, I think, mm-hmm. and that's part of the reason why they can be transparent. So I think with me, I still I would love to go down the road of having stockists around the world, like a couple of key ones, and I just don't know if that model will work. It's something I need to explore, but I will work with partners, if you know what I mean. Because when you're just selling online, you can kind of just have one margin, whereas if you're wholesaling, there has to be a double like the wholesaler has to get some profit and then um, brand has to get some profit as well. And that cost could be different in different parts of the world. Yeah. And depending if it's like an online only one, they have a different requirement. You know, they might just take a small percent of the sale or they might take a large percent depending on who they are. It's something I think I definitely would like to be more transparent in terms of the comparison, like mm. as in, okay, this is what it would cost if we did it in sort of unfair circumstances and then this is what in fair circumstances it does cost that's definitely something for the future black moon to think about that'll be something i might tackle at some point are you stocked in many bricks and mortar no it's on the dream board this year (laughs) so that's something that you're going to chase down yeah i do know what for the biggest thing is kind of spreading the word when you're your own little website one of the hardest things to do is get people to come to it you want other people to be talking about it you want other people to be experiencing it and personally as a shopper I go to those ethical platforms to try and find okay if I need something what are the brands that are available to me because these guys have already been vetted by this like well-known ethical platform I can understand their values really quickly how things are made Mm -hmm. Um, and I would like to offer that to other potential customers around the world to ha- for them to have my leather option is something to purchase. But yes. <laughs> exciting. Very yes, exciting. very exciting. I, I hope. So you're getting a good run at Paris Fashion Week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sort of the next part of the journey, like I need to, yeah, you need to start having some sort of relationship with even if it's just another online platform. Just to get more exposure. Yeah. There needs to be a sustainability fashion trade show of some kind. Yes, there's sort of got... this starting to bubble away. Yeah. There's one, I think, in Copenhagen. They've just done one in Copenhagen, like almost like a sustainability summit. So you go there and there's factories that are sustainable, materials, products, but then also brands. And then they have lots of discussion panels as well that would love to go to that. Let's go to Copenhagen. If anyone wants to shout me a (laughs) trip. (laughs) 
Sure. Any investors listening? <laughs> I know, yeah, exactly. But imagine if there was even just a store, a bricks and mortar store in yeah. Sydney or Melbourne that just had sustainable products. Yeah. Like it just doesn't even exist yet. There's a couple of online ones, but... Yeah, there will be soon, I feel. Or if there is, give us a shout. Yeah, give us a <laughs> yeah, shout. No, we don't know them. Hit me up. <laughs> but I... Yeah. Yeah, you want those customers that are walking in there who are already... I mean, it would be lovely to get someone on board with our values, but at the same time, if you've got a customer that's walking into a boutique with already with the mindset of them loving sustainability and ethical and transparency values, that's amazing because you know, like you're right in there with all the other products that they love. Mm, yeah, and the brands that they love. Yeah, maybe one day we'll create one together. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Sounds like a yeah. great idea. Yeah. <laughs> That's also on the dream board. <laughs> yeah, do you want your own store one day? Yeah, I would love... That's the ultimate goal, I think. Like, I would love um, a bricks and mortar, oh. but not just not just for my brand. I would love to offer the whole lifestyle. Oh, cool. Yeah. So exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Where would you want it, in Melbourne or Sydney? Oh, gosh, I don't know. I feel like in Melbourne at the moment it would be better received. I feel like Melbourne, it's the place for Australia. 100%. It's so a little bit more progressive. Yeah, so progressive. All about like they, they're already in that mindset of like local handmade transparency. Like they love that stuff. And that's, Maybe yeah. Maybe Portland. Maybe start. Oh my gosh, yes. Start overseas. Oh my God, I would love Portland. I was Portland. there last November with a friend who lives there, which was great because she took me to all the little hubs. That And they're just like Melbourne on steroids, like in terms of being progressive, especially yep. in the sustainability space. Yeah, definitely. I know. It's such a, a cool area. I know. I feel like America is definitely on. I still feel like there's a little bit of me that needs to live in America for a little while. <laughs> well, you did New York. Yes. Do you want to tell all the listeners where you've lived? You're quite a little nomad. <gasps> yeah. How, how have you gotten to this point? Oh, my gosh. Your life leading up to Blackburn. She met me in London and then yeah. she's like, I've just got to follow her yeah. to Australia <laughs> <laughs> and live with her. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Gosh, I think probably at about 16 or 17, I decided that I wanted to do fashion. So my next two years at high school, I made all of my subjects get I geared toward, were geared towards that. Went basically to Massey University, which is a really cool university in Wellington, New Zealand. I mean, a lot of good fashion designers have come out of there, like Karen Walker. From that point on, I got my first job. I interviewed for my first job in the la, like the last month of my degree, and I got it. So I was one of the like beyond super fortunate people to basically leave, did my last fashion show, and the next week I was working, which is kind of unheard of in New Zealand. And I was a design assistant, which was is like one of the most desirable jobs when you first get out. Like to be able to design was. Amazing. And then, um, so I worked for this cool company called Moochie, uh, contemporary New Zealand label, and got some really great opportunities. Did my first trip over to Tokyo, and that was my first trip overseas, and my mind was blown. I was like, oh my God, Tokyo first is like trip amazing. Ever. Yeah, first trip ever. And for work. It was oh, for work. Wow. I know. Like, little New Zealand just didn't like get out. Tokyo. Yeah, and to Tokyo. <laughs> yeah, like, all the places. Even if you're a seasoned traveler, oh, Tokyo's like, yeah. still going to blow you. <laughs> and it was just the best trip ever. Oh, the style there was amazing. The people were beautiful. It was, yeah, and that city obviously is on steroids. So I came back and then I promptly decided to start saving to, to move overseas. So I did, 
I lived in Europe for a couple of years doing um, boating, nothing to do with fashion. I uh, went to the Caribbean for six months on the boats as well. And then I came... We're like high-end. When you say yeah. boating, we're not talking about on a little tinny. We're talking, no. yes. we're talking <laughs> like, yeah, luxury with mega yachts. With the creme de la creme of... How did you yeah. get into that? Oh, it was such a weird... You're like old we, with such famous, like, rich, yeah. wealthy like humans. Naomi Campbell. Like, she... Uh, yeah. I still have her Dolce & Gabbana scarf that she left on. Love the lost probably yeah. been. Yeah, exactly. I was like, and I did not get in the back. Yeah. <laughs> um, that was a, an amazing experience in terms of being able to travel to all these beautiful places on someone else's dollar. <laughs> well, Euro at the time. <laughs> um, and But it was also, uh, you know, you get over that kind of lifestyle quite quickly. Like I think I did four seasons in total. Anyway, I then moved to London just as the credit crunch hit, which was pretty tough. Mm. Um, I think I had enough money for me to survive for nine months in London and I literally got a fashion job just as my money was about to run out. So I was doing hospitality there for a while. And that was pretty hard because, you know, coming from that first job, I got it so, not easily, but it was like it just went really smoothly straight into like a design job. And when I was moved to London, they were like, uh, what do you mean you've done all these things? Because within with small companies in New Zealand, you do everything. You know, you design and you produce, you do the photo shoots, you do everything mm. because it's a small business. You're, you've got many hats. Whereas in London, it, everything was so divided. You're the trims buyer mm. or you're the fabric buyer or you're the designer, but then there's a buyer that buys your designs and like it's it's all very um segregated and people sort of have quite a limited job spec it was really weird but anyway I ended up getting a job for Oasis which is a high street uh fashion store as a trims buyer which was quite weird but um, I met some amazing people there Uh, my manager there is one of the best managers I've ever had and she's still a very good friend I love her and then I decided that I wanted to go to New York Uh, So as part of my boating um, experience, I had a B1, B2 visa, which meant I could go into the US for six months at a time. I think the normal one's three months. Anyway, I went in for six months. I interned for a stylist over there called Patrick Mackey, who used to work for Camilla Nickerson, and she's like quite big over there with Vogue. So we were doing some really cool shoots, worked with Georgia Mae Jagger on like Hudson Jeans. We did photo shoots for Bloomingdale's, like the lookbooks and things like that. We kind of had quite a varied experience, which was awesome. And then I had to go back to London for three months to break up the six-month visa. And I did um, an internship for Bur- not an internship, sorry, a contract for Burberry. I had some friends that worked there, so I just filled in my time there, which was lovely to be in a luxury house in the UK. Actually, when I first moved to the UK, I did a three-month internship with Vivian Westwood as well. Yeah, so that, that was a really cool one. Of, didn't you do another one in New York or was it London mm, with another high-end designer? No, I wanted Alexander Wang, but he yeah. didn't want me. <laughs> <laughs> He's honestly, oh God, he would be the dream. But then when I moved back to New York, I got a job with a handbag designer who was producing locally, but they were exotic skins and I'd never worked with exotic skins before and I I don't really agree with that. But at that point in time, I also wasn't really conscious about it. Like I was Mm. like, this is weird, but I didn't really have too many more thoughts about it. And she was uh, a very interesting lady. She taught me a lot about myself. Um, 
I, I remember good. that phase yeah. being tough for you. Yes, it like was very tough. Like just speaking to you from afar. I can't remember yeah. exactly what the challenges were, but yeah, she was hanging up the phone a couple of times or Skype just being like, damn, she needs to get out of there. <laughs> I did. So this lady talked to you about yourself from a negative perspective? Yeah. Uh, like, yeah, so she was very, um, she was, oh, I don't know how to explain Goldie her in a nice way. This, Goldie has this amazing ability just say you and I had a tough experience in a job. You'd be like, that job was so shit and they treated me so poorly and it's all their fault. Gould is the kind of person that would go, well, what is it about me that's making this situation worse? So she's trying to say that this lady taught her about her own stuff that she hadn't recognised before and, like, how to deal with maybe your own weaknesses yeah, as a person. definitely. And even is that right? more than anything, to, it, can, it definitely does that and then it also teaches you to have enough self-love to get out and stand up for yourself when you need to like mm. with this situation I was kind of bound by the fact that she was dangling a visa in front of me and I desperately wanted to stay in New York I bloody love that place like it is one of the most magical cities in the world lived in Brooklyn had the life like it was it was just such a cool city and the energy there is out of control you walk into that city and it's like you feel like your dreams can come true it's I don't know so positive and after being in London this is amazing blue skies happiness compared to like dreary depression (laughs) so she was kind of dangling the visa in front of me so I was almost I was kind of um, blinded a little bit in terms of she's going to give me this great thing, I'll just put up with her crap. And I think if I had my time again, like obviously that taught me so much about myself, but what it did teach me was you need to leave situations sometimes when they're not good for you because some people just are the way that they are and you can't change them and you can't change the situation. But at that time I was so desperate to stay that I put up with a lot of things that I wouldn't put up with now. Mm. But I think that's such a good thing because... As much as it was a hard time, my strength of character increased so much because of that situation. Mm. So you... Yeah, like yeah. when you're young, you need to learn a whole bunch of that kind of thing and mm. you went into it with a pretty amazing perspective to take away some yeah. lessons. Maybe and it's like eight years of yourself. processing it as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think I was thinking this uh, at, at the very time. <laughs> but then, so when the visa didn't come through, because for the first time ever, Kiwis get an H1... H-1B visa, it's different for Australians and basically the visa has never ever run out, like they have a certain amount, right, and then you apply for them and then hopefully you get them. Is that like a lottery? No, it's a different, it's just like your, is there like an A3 visa or something for you guys? Anyway. I forgot what it is, E3. E3, E3, not A3, yeah. It's just a certain amount allocated to a certain bunch of countries, so New Zealand is in it, but then there's other ones. But because of the E3 visa and how it's become a lot easier for Australians to live in America, because there's a lot of Australians there, I think a lot more Kiwis have wanted to go over there and tried to live there. I don't know, that's my vibe with it anyway. And basically the visas were released in October and they were all out by November and Mm -hmm. my boss was putting off applying for it, so... To be honest, I think at the end of the day, she was never going to do it. And I was living in delusion. It was just a carrot dangling in front of you. Yeah, exactly. Just to keep me there, which was strange. But anyway, so to make the decision whether to go back to London or to move to Sydney, which was quite a huge one. And yeah, I made the decision to move back to Sydney. And within a couple of months, I got my job as a an assistant buyer for a big mass market accessories company here. 
and you can name names. Yeah. We're not the ABC. <laughs> well, I, so I started at the bottom there, but obviously I did have experience that it was transferable. And I really did discover that buying was like, I married both sides of my brain, the creativity, but also the analytical side of it as well, because obviously managing budgets and doing all of that kind of stuff and then creating great sales. It was, it was really awesome. And I learned a lot in that role as well. And there was, there's some amazing women in that company that mentored me, you know, like women that have been working with leather for their whole lives. So it was really cool. So when was, you spoke about the one negative lady that you've taken lessons from. Yeah. What about positively? Who's been a massive influence yeah. in getting okay. you to where you were at? Definitely. So the manager that I talked about um, at Oasis, she taught me a lot about she was a really stable lady in the business like she her emotions didn't get the better of her she was very calm cool and collected and she had the belief that everything could be fixed and I think that's like part of a production role or you know any of that kind of stuff we've got a problem let's find a solution and I loved that oh my god she's totally in my vibe like I really love working with her because we had quite a similar outlook on life and that's probably been my nearly probably my only experience of that is in we were heading in the same direction which was awesome yeah the boss in New York taught me a lot about myself in a negative way but then I yeah I do I took a lot of positive things from it and then in my last job I had my first manager absolutely loves leather and loves design and all that kind of stuff and I took so much from that like she's she would get passionate every kind of season about products and you really knew that her being a buyer was what she really loved, which was awesome. And then I also had, in the second half of that, I also had another mentor. She had worked with Leather her whole life as well. Like, so these women have been in the business for like 30 to 40 years. So the, their experience is so vast. I just loved, I would love sitting down and listening to them talk about the heyday, you know, like going on those flights and buying trips now sort of take, you know, two weeks to go New York, London, Hong Kong and home. Whereas they used to spend like six weeks away. You couldn't take flights that quickly or like you would take a flight somewhere and then spend a week there and then you would take a flight somewhere else and spend a week there. And then you would go to the factory in Italy and spend a couple of weeks handing Mm. over the design, working with the factory. And I was like, that sounds amazing. That sounds... Mm. um, We don't have that experience anymore. Yeah, exactly. Like you don't... the internet's there. You can see everything on the internet. It's not the same. And yeah, and everything's kind of fast paced now right like what you were saying with your business everybody wants something to happen so quickly whereas um I think we allowed ourselves a lot more time and you know there was less pressure Mm. like I bet you the budgets 20 years ago were like probably five percent of what the budgets are now you know like yeah the ranges are smaller yeah the drive the quality was better yeah exactly yeah it totally would have been that yeah, Italian-made leather. Imagine mm. that. Like, would have been beautiful. I love when you go into a vintage store now, or some of my mum's old clothes, and they say "made in Australia." And I'm just like, oh, I need that on my body. Like, yeah. I can't believe things <laughs> are actually made here. It's so foreign to us, but that's fully how it was. Yeah, yeah. It's like, what happened? 
What happened? Uh, but I've also got some really good girlfriends in the fashion industry, especially, like Brittany. Um, and I've got good girlfriends in Melbourne as well. So it's always like, it's so nice to be able to bounce ideas off people or like you, you know that they understand what you're going through because everybody's got it on a similar level. Friends are key. We're kind of just going through your background yeah. and then... <laughs> Long story, sorry. <laughs> no, that's great. What was the pivotal point where you're like, I'm going to create my own label? Oh, okay. So that happened about three years into my last job. I pretty much had, a, uh, I would say for me, it was probably the biggest breakdown. It's really hard because I feel like I don't remember it properly now, but basically uh, things weren't going very well at work. And I was, because uh, I was I, I was almost taking the step from junior buyer to buyer. I was out of my depth, I think. I thought I knew what I was doing and I didn't. And I kind of put myself in a lot of shit. And I would, I would literally, I would go to work at seven o'clock. I would leave at eight o'clock at night. Like I was, oh, it, it was a really intense period. And I remember calling my mum in tears, and she was like, "Amy, she's like, she's like, what, surely you've got other stuff outside of work that's giving you something." She, and I was just remember being like, "Oh my god, mum, I am doing nothing but work at the moment." I was like, "My life is work. What the hell? Like, what is going on?" And in that kind of extreme moment of emotion. What am I doing with my life? What do I actually want to do? And that's when I came back to my original dream. If I wanted, I've always wanted to create my own brand. And if I don't do it soon, I'm gonna gonna miss the boat a little bit. I think the older you get, the more scared you get of taking risks. Mm. And like, I, I felt like I was on that, like I was on the edge of staying in an area that I kind of knew. But anyway, so through that whole process of the really stressful kind of work time that I was going through, it made me really reassess what I wanted to do with my life. So I think that was two years before I left. So the pivotal moment happened two years ago. Oh, not two years ago, four years ago. And it took me two years to um, save enough money, also be okay with myself. Like I didn't want to leave that job and think that I was doing a bad job, if you know what I mean. So I sort of did a couple more seasons there. Really, I felt got good at what I was doing and left kind of on a well, what I would say, good note rather than in terms of in my internal emotion of, I felt like I really resolved that issue that I had there. Mm-hmm. And then I was ready to move on to the next thing that I... So you left on good terms and not just like in a half being like, fuck you. Well, <laughs> I don't know if I would necessarily get good terms for everybody else, but it was good terms for me because then I was um, at a good place. Yeah, and you're, you're the big, big boss of that brand, gave you his best wishes. And remember we were walking, we were taking... Oh, yeah. he's the CFO. CFO. Well, someone high up who wished you well. Like you didn't yeah. leave on bad terms. Yeah, I still have good friends from that company. For as long as I've known you, were always like one day yeah. I want my own brand but you yeah. kind of just needed to I think hit I, yeah you sort of sometimes you can bury your head in the sand I think I did that I was like oh god now I'm on this trajectory going this way and I really loved the job I did love it obviously that was a really bad point at the three or two year mark but I came out the other side and I really enjoyed it but it was just the whole my values were matching up and yet I did want to do something for myself I could keep making money for a big company and it would be fine but it's like I don't know if that's that's what I'm not really about, you know? Yeah. I remember even just on the ethical part of it because you were always just wanted the brand and we were talking a lot of that time and then talking more and more about sustainability and ethics. Maybe you should add this layer in 
and you are already living your life like that and you're like, oh, of course, it totally marries up. Yeah, I think the ethical, ethical side of it definitely wasn't there at the beginning. I, obviously because I've been dreaming about this since I was a lot younger. Yeah. It was something that came in at that time for sure because I think everybody's sort of kind of progressing at quite a quick speed now in terms of I think about I was having coffees every day or takeaway cups for a good part of my mm. adult life and I feel so devastated about that I've had my keep cup now for like maybe four years I was drinking coffee for a good 10 years before that yeah. how did I not ever think about that it's so weird it's so weird isn't it nobody like, even thought about no. it yeah. and it's like why, why did I th- oh, I was just like oh my god your consciousness does grow as you I don't know yeah but I just I remember thinking good on you at the time because you just were really surely is a maybe a common trait in successful people is that you were agile and you pivoted as they say like oh you gosh, didn't just get fixated on what your dream was in quotation marks from being a uni student you were like what's relevant now yeah and you fully applied it to this idea yeah I think it's amazing um, it's that's something I think that comes quite naturally to me because I love change and I love being at the front of things Mm. I'd hate doing the same thing over and over again that's something that I feel like for me kills myself Mm. and I know that's that's not for everybody like some people do love routine I think it's a creative thing yeah like like, creative people a bit of structure and discipline is good but when it's constant repetitiveness you you just switch off yeah you're like I I did the same thing last year and I've learned those lessons so like we need something new but yes having a business and having an ethical sustainable business is a very big challenge that is going to keep me going for a while (laughs) no for sure so what are some of the challenges that you've faced in creating Black Moon today so for me I'm not a I've I've never done marketing. And to be honest, from the outside looking in, I thought marketing would be an easy thing. Take some photos, put it up on yeah, the web. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it is so not that. I don't know. Like, I think some people it must come really naturally to, but that is not my... Oh, I hate taking pictures of myself. I hate doing mm. all of that kind of stuff. And I know that it helps people understand the brand. They want to hear your story. They want to see you, da 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 But for me, it's just... Oh, I find it so cringy, and I, I really am trying to balance the thing between being a good business owner and putting my brand out there for people to find. Because obviously, I want them to find it. Because the more people that have my bags, the less people that have synthetic ones. But I do think there's almost like a sustainable, ethical level on the social media thing and a thing as well. Like I think there's a lot of people out there, me included, that are struggling with it at the moment. I feel like it's just turned into one big marketing fest and there's not the great imagery that there used to be, you know, when it first started out. I loved that platform seven years ago and <laughs> now it's just turned into the new Facebook. Just ad after ad after ad. Yep. Yeah. And Which is so annoying. Like it used to be such a good yeah. creative platform for artists and creatives yeah. to showcase their work. And yeah, but and for me yeah. to get um, it out past my group of followers, you, the algorithm won't pretty much get it out there. No. You have to pay for that to get it out there. So it, then it just feels so... Oh, I don't know, I just feel like there's a layer of grossness about it. Yeah. Beyond that, back to marketing your own brand, you've created some pretty amazing imagery around yes. like the lookbooks for your oh my gosh yeah your, um 
really cool photographer from my hometown, Bjorn Johnston. I think that's the, one of the exciting things about having a business is working with other young creatives because yeah. you're all sort of starting out. So you're mm, all... Passionate yeah, and passionate. enthusiastic. Yeah. <laughs> and like you, you haven't been grinded yeah. down. <laughs> Yeah, you put those shoes together amazingly. Oh, when when those images came through, I was like, "Holy moly, they look like a polished, oh, high end." Gosh, I was I like, hope "Who's so. the model? Who's the photographer?" Like, "Oh, the models from work and the yeah. photographers from home." I'm like, "Oh gosh." So you <laughs> said it was a challenge, but then you've gone and created this amazing. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. Like, so I already um, earlier on suggested that I keep the collections up on the website. So now I have a yeah. tab where you can see them so you can go back and view the collections. There's so much work that does go into them. And you kind of want a, a little bit of an album to, to be like, you know, we, yeah. we started at collection one and now we're at collection whatever. Because yeah. that's the vehicle to showcase what you're all about. Yeah. Like from what you dress the model in to you, your last model, she had like it looked like an Asian kind of look about her which showed your you're very multicultural and like your approach to you yeah. know you don't like segmenting or no yeah and like she had shaved hair she was so yeah cool. she had she's no so hair cool. like she was beautiful she's stunning like she's never she's only done a little bit of modeling work but I think that's the thing because because you're small you have to kind of think outside the box because you've got restrictions on budget you've got restrictions on time like this. so do you did you just approach them and say can I just pay you not so much and they said yes or yeah, I mean, so people's time is still precious. How did you get them on board? What was it? What was in it for them? Well, um, or you did pay them what they would expect from someone else. Yeah, so it's. I think it's a, a fine balance in terms of. Of course, you definitely want to pay people. People, no matter how small they are, it's still their time. And it's, I think the thing is you need to be upfront with your budget straight away because they can say yes or no at that point. I, I think that's my thing. It's like, I would love to work with you. This is my budget. Can we make it happen? And that would be different for a lot of people. I don't know my budget. My budget is definitely small. Basically, you know, like I pay the photographer and I pay the model. And we didn't do makeup this time. There was no hair, obviously. Because so like, <laughs> you had none. Yeah, and I was Good like, choice of model. Yeah. <laughs> my husband comes along and helps do certain things and then, you yeah, know, like had the photographer's wife me. comes on yeah, and helps with that. So it is such a team effort. And for him, he's creating a campaign, which is awesome. He might be assisting in his day-to-day life and then he's getting to take charge of the full thing. And he's obviously super talented as well. There's a benefit there for him and then there's a benefit for me, if you know what I mean. You kind of have to create those relationships where it's good for both. Mm. You don't want to how did you find anyone. those people though? Uh, so just people the, you knew? Yeah. So a photographer was someone I knew and then obviously the girl I um, work with. Yeah. Yeah. So networking is a pretty key thing. Yes. Yep. I think in life you always meet the people that you, not that you need, yeah, you don't necessarily have to go to the modelling agency. I mean, I did do that for my first collection, but that price is quite unsustainable at the moment, you know, so you have to go, okay, I can't do that. What am I going to do? And it just so happened that I worked with a really beautiful girl <laughs> who is, and the thing is, that, I mean, she is beautiful, but you also have to be good in front of the camera, which mm. again, that's another thing. Looking from a, looking at a picture, you think it's simple. It's not simple no, at all. You no. have to have a look. You have to have. It's a whole different. Yeah. It's a, it's a it's different persona. Model. 
It's definitely an art form in itself. Oh, it's so... The little experience that I have had yeah. at it. Oh, man. Oh, my yeah. God. It looks so stiff and clunky. Yeah. <laughs> what do I do with my hands? Oh, my God, I know. And you just feel so self-conscious there. Like, the, Brady was trying to take photos of me before trying to get some content. <laughs> and I just hate it. I feel so self-conscious. I don't like it. I don't want to be in the max of it. It's such a skill. I've worked with some really high-end models and have been absolutely mesmerised. They literally walk in front of the camera. It's like they're performing. I know. I was, like, blown away. Something else takes over them. They're totally in the zone. And they're focused. It's like they're acting and they just lock eyes with the camera and with the photographer. And And get the good angles because I think that's half of it. They know their body. I have such an appreciation for it. It's not just standing there by any means. And looking pretty. So you had confidence that this girl's photos were... Yes, because I'd seen um, some of her Instagram shots. Yeah. Yeah, so I knew that she could pose. (laughs) They weren't all selfies. No, no, no. Uh, No, I think she'd done a couple of other little jobs, like other friends that were in the creative field, so that was cool. What did you dress her in? Like whose label or like she had shoes on as well? She had her own shoes on, which was awesome. cool. This is something that I really do want to work on in the future is align with a brand Mm. that I... Yeah, want to be a part of because I kind of tried to just get nondescript clothing that was white. Yeah, was the vibe. There are brands out there that do feel like would marry up with the brand. That is the next hurdle to. Mm. And then you have to, like, I'd imagine that would be hard if you had an idea of the shoot and then they had an idea of the shoot. I wonder if there'd be. Hopefully you just find like a really good match, but you can foresee like potentially you've got different ideas of how you want the photos to turn out. Oh, no, I I get what you mean about the collab there. I was just thinking as in, could we just use your clothes for our photo photo shoot? Yeah, okay. So they would get content and we would credit them. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. So then yeah. you would just use them and return them? That, that's yeah, kind of, okay. So you use samples, I think, is yeah. generally what happens. That's a good idea. Did you brief the photographer in on yeah. everything about your business and what kind of imagery you were after? Yeah, so I always give quite uh, solid briefs. I mean, he knows my vibe now, I think, as well. So we both go hunting for the locations and things like that. And we, I really wanted to use Carriage Works as one of the locations, which in hindsight is a good thing that I didn't because I feel like a lot of fashion brands do use that. But it's like, yeah, there's beautiful concrete there and I'm obsessed with beautiful concrete. But anyway, <laughs> so this is where as a small business, you probably do skip a few steps. You should really get insurance for working out in the public and all that kind of stuff. Mm. And then you have a photo shoot at Carriage Works. You have to apply so many months in advance and... It's, it's yeah, it's a different. Yeah, did you get like ball game permission to shoot where you've shot, or you just shot there? So one of them was um, a squash court, and we paid the guy to use it for the morning, um, and he gave me uh, a really good rate because I called him up. I think this is a thing with um, small businesses, and something that I'm still learning is that people humans are humans and they really appreciate you starting out and not having a budget and trying to do something cool and this guy I was like look I know your daily budget is x but I'm like I'm just starting out and I really would love to use it we'd only we'll only use it for half a day blah 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 and he's like yeah that's fine and I was like can I just pay this much amount of the budget and it was like 20% of the full price price and he was like yep I can do that for you I mean you obviously have to fit in with them we did it on a Sunday and you know that Mm. obviously has to work with everybody else but there are little ways around it if you're I guess willing and desperate (laughs) yeah it just pays to be honest and I think that's also a big part of what your business is about too you have to speak from your heart I think when I do that stuff I'm, I'm it's not like I'm faking it I really would love your help I know that you don't owe me anything 
that's I don't know I think people appreciate that mm. it doesn't always work no yeah. but yeah putting yourself out there and just asking especially when you're starting out that's a massive challenge Huge. sometimes yeah you're kind of oh man I'm so small and insignificant yeah why would this person <laughs> even bend the rules for me or Definitely. whatever it is but a lot of the time if you're brave enough to ask and you're honest and people will open up and give you a hand yeah I think most people are decent humans and it's like they would love to help you and I think that's the thing that I've been listening to a lot of podcasts recently and they've been talking about finding mentors lots of people are willing to help if you ask a really great question and you've actually tried to figure it out yourself I think I listened to this on Tim Ferriss show the other day he was like when I talk about having mentors I might email them once every six months you know to catch up or catch up with them once a year he's like that's kind of what I consider a mentor like when I've got a really hard problem and I really need help someone to fix it and he was like you know like don't come to someone and just be like oh I've got this question but I've not really tried to figure it out finding those people you align with align with that you think will know the answer to but also you've got to do your own research so I think I went off on a bit of a tangent then no no for <laughs> but sure but like um, finding mentors is I think the yeah. next step for me yeah mentors is something that I definitely wanted to take this conversation to because I'm at a point where I want to mentor people and I also want to be mentored yep Definitely. I think it's just so pivotal in helping you grow and whatever business or challenges that you face. Yeah. Just being able to ask someone that's been through it before a a different perspective. Yeah. Russell Brand, one of his things that helps actually keep him sober, but I think everybody could take on board, is he mentors younger kids in the AA system. So they will call him and he'll be able to help them work through their issues because he's obviously been there. But then he also has mentors that are much older that have obviously been where he is at like 35 or however old he is. And it's it's so true. You do need that more experienced person sometimes. And then it's also lovely to be able to help out that younger person that was where you were 10 or 15 years ago as well. So would you, as your business grows, would you look to employing a mentor kind of strategy throughout your business? Is that part of your ethics? So when I do get to that position where I would employ someone, I do feel like it would be part mentorship anyway. I mean, I guess a good manager would be a mentor, is what I consider. Yeah, for sure. And because they'd be much younger anyway, you're going to be imparting their knowledge. And when you work for a small business that is part of almost like the financial package. Okay, you may not be getting paid as much, but you will you will be gaining so much more working for a smaller business because you do have a much bigger uh, responsibility. Yeah. Um, well, that's what I found anyway. Working with small businesses is generally you don't get paid as well because the budgets are not there but at the same time the experience is worth so much yeah and not to say that I mean I don't think you should aim to go for somewhere that's not paying you well but at the same time I think that's the kind of model of small businesses generally is that it's you're still yeah, getting something yeah, out of it there yeah, is you're that still getting nurturing it. side anyway yeah exactly small business yeah especially with your business it's kind of breaking new ground yeah so taking on anybody you're going to be teaching them everything about the business and taking that person under the wing and imparting your wisdom. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like um, managing people is a whole new realm of a business. A lot of people have issues, not issues, but I think maybe they learn a lot of lessons by managing people. I don't know if I'm ready for that yet. (laughs) 
I need um, maybe a few more seasons underneath my belt before I get there, but it's going to be exciting. That first employee, oh my gosh, who are they going to be? And you'd also have to have so much trust in them when it's, like you said, your time and your money. So yeah. you would naturally want to guide and mentor them the best you could yeah. so that your business didn't fall apart. Exactly. They make the right choice that's that align with yes, what this... the business is about to. Yeah. But hopefully you employ someone that's aligned, but it's not. If they make mistakes, that's okay. But Yeah. I mean, because you think about all the mistakes that we made when we were young. Yeah. I mean, gosh, we're all still making mistakes, but I do remember, like I vividly remember in the UK, just before I left actually, <laughs> I ordered plum lining, 1,000 metres of it, instead of the new plum lining. <laughs> and it was a totally different colour. And, oh, my God, it was like that was one my biggest mistake at the time because that's however many pounds a metre. And my manager always used to text me the years after. She's like, I'm slowly like, <laughs> slowly getting that lining down to like a reasonable level. I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, yeah, so, yeah, everyone's going to make mistakes. But, it, yeah, hopefully, hopefully you survive. Yeah. <laughs> you survive the mistakes. Yeah. What about you, Bridget? Who's been a pivotal mentor in your life? I was actually just thinking that when you were speaking about the lady in London, I've had a real lack of mentors. If I think back to all my jobs, I actually haven't had any. Maybe they've been mentors in the way, as in not the negative way, but because then you're learning something from what not to do. Yeah. Maybe. I've definitely had people in business who I've looked up to, but I haven't been able to work with them in a mentorship capacity. What about the night guy? Yeah, he like he comes to mind, but I worked with him for six months yeah. and there was actually a manager in between us. But yeah, he is definitely someone that I looked up to and yeah, I was kind of about to start that. I'm 30 plus now, but if I think back to all of like my 20s, yeah, there was a couple people in there, but not not really some like the way you just spoke about that manager. Yeah, I haven't had a manager like or mentor that like that. Yeah, because I don't think I think all managers definitely are not perfect. I mean, none of us are perfect, but with each one, I've been able to pull something out of them, mm. which is really an awesome. But yeah. It is tough when you do get the, the tough yeah, ones. I'm not, now at work, would love that too and just don't have it. Yeah. Where do you get that from? No, it's and I, I put it out there. Yeah. I ask people and I just don't. I know. Maybe I, think, I look tough to mentor. Yeah. Well, I think as well, I had such a different view of mentorship until I listened to that podcast and he was like, when I talk about mentors, this is what it means. And it's like, oh, I kind of thought it was a bit more like buddy-buddy. But when you think about it, how much time in our lives do we have to form, you know, like, it's not like we can meet up with them weekly unless they are your actual manager. And mm. then that would be a good situation because you would have a much more consistent contact with them. Mm. But yeah, if you're only seeing them once a year or like once every six months, I guess they're there to help with the tough questions, but it's not the day-to-day yeah. I don't know. I feel like I get a lot of help from books and from podcasts. Mm. Podcasting. Oh, my gosh. It's kind of been life-changing in the last few years. It's so it's so weird how, do you know, did you ever look at the app on your phone and be like, oh, I'm never going to listen to a podcast? <laughs> I was, I was, yeah, yeah, I totally. understand what the hell it was. Yeah, I was like, what is going on? Like, what is this thing? And then all of a sudden it's just a burst into the... What, can you remember the first podcast you listened to? I can't. Or even when it was. Oh, it was the Joe Rogan one a few years ago. 
my brother was into podcasts before I was, and he recommended the Joe Rogan one. Oh, oh, Joe Rogan, though, is very geared to males, which is awesome. Yeah. Um, but I think mine was like a business one. I think it was how I built this. Yeah. What are your top five Ooh, at this point I actually in have time. an email with my top five. So at the moment, um, the high-low, I absolutely love that. And I like we were talking about in the car the other day, it's so great because these girls are um, journalists talking about events that are reviewing books and movies but also things that are happening in the culture today. But they are actually really intelligent and eloquent and I really feel like I learn a lot when I listen to them in terms of they both kind of generally have a different view on things. So it's Mm -hmm. like nice to have a debate to be like, oh, I see that side and then, oh my God, yeah, I see that side. And of course, there's always more sides to a story. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the most crucial things with podcasting now. You're getting long form stories and you're getting different perspectives Yeah, where mainstream media has just been pushing the one angle for so long. 100%. Mm. That's um, so true. The Good Life is cool. It's a little bit kooky. Your Creative Start, which is done by a girl up in Noosa, which is awesome. So she interviews Australians that have sort of got relatively new brands or companies, which is all cool. The Offline Podcast, which is Alison Rice, who used to kind of head up the Who, What, Where, and she explores like a lot of the kooky realm that I love, but with people who um, are successful and stuff. So it's great to see the spiritual side. And then Akimbo, who's my favourite marketer guy, Seth. Is it Seth? Yeah. He he looks at things in such a cool way and it's just really interesting hearing his perspective on things. Sweet. What is the next thing that you want to create with Black Moon? Oh, okay. The next kind of part of our journey, I, I guess really my big thing that I'm thinking about this year is creating relationships. So I want to oh. create I want to create relationships with um, some key people, uh, some key businesses in terms of one amazing online platform that I would love to be a part of. But I also want to um, create relationships with um, micro, some micro-influencers that uh, I feel like really embody our brand and get it out there. That's a, that's an awesome answer. As an artist, I'm like so solo-minded. I'm like make a painting yeah. <laughs> or like creating a, yeah, a relationship that's yeah. like... Yeah, that's awesome. And I never sort of, I never thought about it like that way before, but I definitely, when I was writing out my plans, I was like, I think there's a lot about relationships, a lot of this. I think to create opportunity, relationships are a pathway there. Mm, yeah, like that. sweet. And on the flip side, what do you want to destroy? <gasps> I would love to destroy plastic if we could. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think there's, oh, what do I want to destroy? I would love to destroy some people's um, beliefs, like on, I don't know, like the products that they're buying or the like, like I think deconstructing part of people's beliefs, deconstructing, destroying part of some people's beliefs will leave a gap to be, I guess, open to new things and new discoveries and what, what this world could be and where we could be going. Because part of that, that you kind of almost need to destroy something that's not working, right, to create the new thing. Yeah, and out of destruction. Ideology. Yeah, like yeah. destroying that belief that you do need that $5 top, like you don't. No. <laughs> you don't. You really don't because it's not going to last long and then, gosh. But uh, anyway, I would love to destroy some people's. I would like even like 10 or 20 a year, you know, if I could get those new customers in to be like, okay, 
stop buying those synthetic things and come and buy something of quality. That would be amazing. Mm. And would you apply those questions um, in your personal life outside of Black Moon as well? Ooh, what would I like to... What was the first question? What would I like to create? Yeah. Um, So... Oh, God, this is quite deep, personal. <laughs> um, but I guess so me and my partner are trying to have a kid at the moment, so I guess I would love to create a human, which is wow. a weird answer. <laughs> Doesn't get much more than that. It's a true creation. Human, a little human, yeah. And, and what would I like side? to destroy? Not, um, not destroy a human. No, yeah. <laughs> I think I would like to destroy some of my, like, Maybe some habits about myself or some ways of thinking um, that I don't, I think, are outdated. Like I think I've put, I think we as a human race put so many limiting, so much, so many limiting beliefs on ourselves. Yeah, it Uh, just becomes habitual. Yeah, and it's like there's so much possibility out there and deep down I know that and love it. But it's like really easy to be wrapped up in the like, oh, I can't do this because of X, Y and Z. And it's like actually let's start thinking about how can I do this rather than saying I can't? So mm. that's the I think the the brain path that I want to destroy is I can't. Very cool. Yep. Mm. And if you'd if you'd want to destroy a physical object of your choosing <gasps> with a baseball bat, what <gasps> would you tackle? What thing do I hate the most? <laughs> um, at the moment, it would be. I'm just going to wrap up like five things together and that would be straws, disposable coffee cups, plastic bags, disposable cutlery and takeaway containers. All oh. together. They, they come as a pack of five. <laughs> Kablamo. Yeah. <laughs> Destroy. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, Lukey. And pretty good chat. Good chat. It's been a great chat. <laughs> oh my yeah. god, it's been amazing to be a part of the first podcast. Yeah. <laughs> you. <laughs> and that's it for today. The first podcast done and dusted. The you. You. <laughs> <laughs> Thank Obrigado. Tinacoto.